Let me read Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is the church in Philadelphia. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to pray for us, but one other thing that I wanted to mention, because I've, I've already mentioned in the past that, that uh, maybe sometimes I take a little bit of a unique stance when it comes to Revelation. If you want to talk about that after church this morning, we'll, we'll meet for a few minutes just out by the picnic tables. If you have further questions or you want some more clarification, we would love to have you join us for that. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. It is precious to us. And I pray that you would help us to live by your word to not just say with our mouths only that we agree with it and we love it, but to truly deeply in our hearts desire to be conformed to the image of Christ through your word. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be at work doing that in our lives. And Lord, I I know there are people here this morning and they've come in various states of being today. Some are in joy and ecstatic. Others are broken. Some are struggling. Others are discouraged. And Lord, you, you know and you, you see our hearts. They're laid out before you. And so God, I ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would just minister to us this morning. God, whatever it is that we need, whether it's encouragement or comfort or even maybe rebuke, God, I pray that you would provide it so that we could be drawn deeper into your presence this morning. And we bless you. We just bless you as the God who loves us so much so that you showed us grace in the death and resurrection of your son. And for that, we worship you. Amen. Well, we're very close to the end of this series in Revelation. There's only one more week after this week, and then we're going to start a series kind of leading up to Easter. And today I want to start by just reminding you of a couple of things that I said Way back at the beginning of this series, when we first looked at Revelation 1 as kind of an introduction, and I think uh, the first one is sort of a mega theme. Maybe you could say it's a key to helping us understand the book of Revelation as a whole. And that's this, that it is nearly impossible for us to understand the prophecy of Revelation, to make sense of what God is really saying in this book, without a thorough understanding of the Old Testament. I mean, I'm a lover of the New Testament. Uh, I, that's probably where I spend a lot of my time studying. But 
we can't just toss out the Old Testament because a lot of times we can't make sense of what God is doing in this new covenant era if we don't understand what he has done in the old covenant era, okay? So uh, just to remind you of what I said in week one, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and it's estimated that as many as 278 of those verses hold references to the Old Testament, which is more than 70%. It's just astonishing. Within those 278 verses, there are more than 500 allusions to Old Testament texts. And that's more than all of the rest of the New Testament combined. So what I would say to that is Revelation is the concluding book in Scripture because it ties the entire Bible together. From Genesis to the church age that we are in today, this is the epic story of God's triumph over evil through all time in every generation by the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And that is just beautiful, I think. The second thing I want to remind you of is that in each letter to each church, the opening description where we find these words about Jesus and what he looks like they all point back to this vision of Christ in chapter 1. So we see one letter is sent from him who has eyes like the flame of fire. That's how Jesus was described in chapter 1. Another is said to be the words of him who holds the seven lampstands. A third comes from him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And all of these things refer back to this stunning picture of Jesus that we have in Revelation chapter 1. And what I think it helps us see is that Christ stands over the church. He is amidst the church. He holds the church in his hands to care for it and uphold it and to love it and sustain it. That's our church. We are part of that church. And so it's very significant, I think, that every letter ties back to this image of Christ in chapter 1 because it shows us this intimate relationship that Jesus our Lord has with his church. Okay, but there's one exception, and if you read before coming to church this morning, maybe to just prepare in Revelation 3, maybe you notice that this letter, the letter to the church in Philippi, or I'm sorry, in Philadelphia, uh, that, this is the one place where it's not connected to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. If we were to scour the first chapter of Revelation, we wouldn't find this description closely matching John's vision of Christ at all. We could skip to the end of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 19, which is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And there we find Jesus coming on his white horse against the armies of the earth who are standing up against him. And he there is called faithful and true. And so this points forward to Revelation 19. That's cool. But the reason that I point this out, verse 7, is that this strange anomaly here, this bizarre exception to the rule, I think should really stand out to us. It should catch our attention, I believe. There are certainly more descriptions of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 that have not been that have not yet been used that could have been used but i would say there's a greater purpose at work here in this exception which is done obviously very intentionally right 
I think Jesus doesn't want us to see revelation in relation to itself alone. It can be easy for us sometimes to read books of the Bible and think of them as just independent units, but we need to see this as a whole, and particularly, revelation needs to be connected to all of what God says in Scripture, the grand purposes of God at work in the world and through his word. And what I would say then is revelation, really, it just ties a myriad of kind of unfinished ends together in the glory of God through history and into eternity as we encounter it. And so what I want you to know here is that although this wording doesn't come from Revelation chapter 1, the language that we find at the beginning of the letter to the church in Philadelphia is not original, okay? So it's been said before, and I would love for you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22. Maybe throw a bookmark in Revelation because we're going to come back here. Isaiah 22 is really almost like smack dab in the middle of your Bible, As you're turning there, just on a side note, I'm in this prophets class in, at, at school, and so I had to read the whole book of Revelation in like just a couple of days, or I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah, in just a couple of days, which was just like a wonderfully profound experience. Uh, if you ever have an extra lot of hours in a day or two, um, tackle Isaiah because reading it as one whole is different than if you read it just chapter by chapter. All right, anyway, chapter 22, verse 22. It says this, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He's actually, let me go back a little bit. I'm sorry. I'm going to start in verse 20, give you a little bit of the context. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Now this is a prophecy that had immediate fulfillment in about 750 B.C. But it's the same language that we find in Revelation chapter 3 at the letter to the church in Philadelphia. So what I would say here is this is a prophecy that was ultimately meant to point forward to a greater king. It's meant to point forward to Christ. Eliakim, who receives the keys of the kingdom of David, is a type of Christ. Eliakim holds the physical earthly keys to the kingdom of David, but he points forward to this greater king who will hold the keys to the kingdom of God with the authority of God to open and shut those doors. And that greater king who Eliakim points forward to in this text in Isaiah is Jesus, of course, because we see that in Revelation chapter 3. Christ, who from the foundations of the earth agreed with the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit by his death and resurrection to redeem mankind, and open the doors of salvation. He holds the keys to God's eternal kingdom, and he alone has the authority to open and shut those doors. So Revelation in the letter to the church in Philadelphia is 
tying this prophecy from Isaiah to Christ as the true fulfillment, the final fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. Okay, now the point of this reference is not just to cherry pick some like obscure verse out of Isaiah, okay? It's ultimately to elevate Christ, but also to highlight the connection of Revelation to Isaiah. I would even go so far as to say that this unique introduction to the letter addressed to the church in Philadelphia is there to make an explicit connection between the book of Isaiah and the church as a whole. The whole church throughout time in Revelation and today with Christ Jesus as its head and its authority. Okay, so look, Jesus claims that he's the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 22:22. But in fact, what I really want you to see is that he is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. Every Old Testament promise made to the people of God is fulfilled in Christ. Now, I, I just need to say that uh, this is why I want to have a discussion after church if you want to stick around. Because the truth is, people disagree on this point. Some people claim that God has unfulfilled promises to the nation of Israel that he is obligated to keep. Personally, I see it differently. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, For all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Every promise of God to Israel is fulfilled in and through Jesus. And I would say that this idea is reinforced by the fact that there's another significant reference to Isaiah in this letter. Go back to Revelation chapter 3 for me. Back in chapter 3, look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus continues to speak to the church, and he says, I know your works. Remember that from last week? If you weren't here, I encourage you to maybe look up that audio file on our website. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This is where I think things get just a little bit weird, okay? Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Sometimes we think of Jesus as having only very nice, friendly, warm, fuzzy things to say. But that's not the complete picture. He says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Okay, what's crazy here is that Jesus opens the doors of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David, in a stunning role reversal that refers back to Isaiah once again. I'm going to take you there, but I want to try and explain this a little bit first, okay? The Jews thought that they had the keys to the kingdom. They were God's chosen people. They were God's beloved. They were the ones who were the object of his affection. They had God's blessing because they were children of Abraham. And they were recipients and keepers of the law, them exclusively. And yet, here we find in Revelation chapter 3 that Christ calls them a synagogue of Satan. 
Like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And so we see here that in this letter, the true people of God are the believers in Philadelphia, not the Jews. Gentile believers are in the kingdom, and yet the Jews are outside of the kingdom, which is totally backwards. It doesn't make any sense. I want you to, uh, to understand, typically there are two primary ways, at least today, uh, in how to understand the way that the Old Testament fits with the New Testament. Have you ever heard somebody say, I just can't make sense of the Bible because the God of the Old Testament is totally different than the God of the New Testament? Okay, well, that's not at all the case. And people have come up with ways to make sense of putting these two things together. And there's really two primary ways about how Jews, Gentiles, and the people of God, how this all comes together and relates, okay? So let me give you these two options. I won't, I'm not going to give you their official names. Let me just explain them to you, okay? Option one, God has a special place in his heart for ethnic Israel, Jews who are Jews by blood. And this view says that because God made promises to the nation of Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. He's going to fulfill them at some future date. Option two is that God is done with ethnic Israel. He has removed ethnic Israel and replaced ethnic Israel with the church. And so these people would say that we, in fact, are Israel because Israel failed and we've replaced them. And in this view, it's the church through whom God will fulfill his promises because they are the real Israel. But I want to present to you a possible kind of third option. Uh, And I would love for you to look into this. I I just have to tell this story. A professor of mine this week was telling me that uh, his father-in-law had asked him, hey, what's new in in the area of theology? And he goes, nothing, because anything new in theology is heresy. So uh, I encourage you to look into this, you know, because I'm not trying to be cutting edge, but I want to present maybe a third option. Uh, I think this is the option that our text speaks to. And the third option is that within the nation of Israel, there were ethnic Jews, of course. There were even some Gentiles. If you look closely at the lineage of Jesus, it's quite fascinating. And these all, although they were ethnically Jews, they belonged to spiritual Israel, a sort of subcategory of Israel. These are people who had real saving faith in God. And it is to these children of Abraham that God made his promises. And it's to these who are the spiritual Israel who've been saved by faith. They are the ones who belong to the church. Even before the church age had began, when Jesus declared, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Even before Christ came, There were those who were saved by faith in the work of God. Okay, so let me show you now finally one other way that our text connects to Revelation. Or, I'm sorry, connects to Isaiah. And I want you to just keep verse 9 in mind. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. I think I have slides for these. Hopefully my big head isn't in the way, but I'd love for you to just read along, okay? Isaiah 45, it says this, 
Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God besides him. This is a prophecy made to believers about unbelievers. And it echoes Revelation 3. Look at Isaiah 49. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Then Isaiah 60. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And then finally, back to Isaiah 43, it says this, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Man, can't you see Christ in that? You are so loved by God that he gives his only son in exchange for you, out of love for you. So we see that much like Revelation chapter 3, okay, in the letter to the church in Philadelphia, God intends to bring those who are far away from him to bow down in repentance among his people. You could say to his people, but really they're bowing to Christ who represent his people. Now listen, the difficulty here is this. In these passages from Isaiah, it seems that it is Israel whom God loves And it is Israel to whom these other nations bow down. But then in Revelation, we see it's the unbelieving Jews who bow down to the Gentiles who are believers in Philadelphia. And I would say they're bowing in repentance, actually. And so it's the Gentiles who are shown to be the one whom God has loved. Again, guys, this is a crazy role reversal. You can see why the deeper the Jews got into the revelations of Christianity in the first and second century, the more they despised this idea. And you need to understand the significance of this, okay? Because here's here's why this matters. If God has promised the Jews, and we mean ethnic Israel by saying the Jews, that these foreign Gentile nations will bow down to them in repentance, then it would seem that God has broken his promises from the picture that we see in Revelation 3, where it's the Jews who are in fact bowing down to the Gentiles. But our God is not a promise breaker, and this is fundamental to our faith in him, that we believe that he fulfills all things that he declares. He has kept all of his promises to his people in Christ. And so if we understand that within ethnic Israel, within the Jews who were Jews by blood, God has always had a spiritual Israel, a remnant, which is a word we find all throughout Scripture. And these people are his true people. Then this begins to make sense. And I think any other way tends to put the character of our God potentially in jeopardy, that he's maybe not a God who fulfills his promises. Okay, let's look at this from one other angle before I get to the part where I explain why this actually matters, okay? One more place to turn, Revelate, or, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 9. 
in Romans chapter 9, we find Paul deals with this very question. He knows that people are going to ask, well, how can we trust in the promises of God if he made all these promises to Israel and now it looks as if they haven't been fulfilled? And so in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6, Paul tries to deal with this. He says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's a quote of Genesis. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Do you see what Paul is saying here? The word of God has not failed because ethnic Israel has not received the promises of God. This is a really important question for us. Is our God trustworthy? Is he powerful enough to do what he says? Can he keep promises that he makes to us through all of the trials and all of the suffering and all of the sin and all of the evil in this world? Is he capable to be triumphant over that? And the answer, of course, is yes. And we see it here. Paul explains it for us. The word of God has prevailed because the promises God made were made to the children of the promise. That is, spiritual Israel, the true people of God, who, like Abraham, believed God and are counted as righteous before him. God's promises then were made to the spiritual Israel, all who, like Abraham, have believed in God by faith, not works or circumcision or lineage of their family, And what's fascinating here in Romans 9 is we have this very same role reversal that we find in Revelation 3 and Isaiah when it comes to Abraham and his family. Think about this. Abraham's oldest son was Ishmael. According to the custom of the day, all of the blessing and benefit should have passed to Ishmael. But in Romans 9, he's not considered a child of Abraham at all in the sense of being a child of promise. Rather, God skipped over the older son and fulfilled his promises through the younger son. Just like God in Revelation skips over ethnic Jews and fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah through Gentiles. And so we see that this is a work of God and nothing else. Let's go a little deeper still, though. Hang with me. How has God fulfilled his promises? Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. In verse 7 of Romans 9, the word that in our Bibles is translated offspring, it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That word in Greek is the word sperma, which means seed. And it's a singular noun, referring to a single seed, a single person. In the immediate context, of course, it refers to Isaac. But in the greater context, it points forward to Christ. In other words, even in the promise to Abraham all of those millennia ago, God was always thinking of the fulfillment of his promises in terms of Jesus Christ, his son. The seed, the offspring of Abraham through whom he would fulfill his promises, and make all who trust in him Jews, the true spiritual of uh, Israel. He, Christ, is the one who's able to open the door so that none may shut it, 
the one who holds the keys to the kingdom of David. Okay, so look, if we really want to know who belongs to Israel, it's actually not that difficult. Jesus Christ is Israel. He is the only ethnic Israelite who actually kept the law of God. He is the offspring, the seed of Abraham through whom every nation on earth can have salvation by faith in him. He is the new Adam having lived obediently to God and through his perfect life and atoning sacrifice redeemed spiritual Israel, those who have faith in him. And this is why Paul says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel because it is all who belong to Christ Jesus who belong to Israel. Because Christ is Israel, the true spiritual Israel, and we therefore are Israel in and through him. And so therefore, for those of us who are in Christ, the promises of God have not failed. They have all been fulfilled in Christ. So now look at one of those promises. Back to Revelation chapter 3. Last time I'm going to make you turn, okay? Verse 12. It says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, maybe it doesn't sound all that exciting to you to be called a pillar in the temple of God. I think a lot of people have very boring conceptions of what it means to live forever in heaven, and that could certainly add to them if you think that that's all that that means. But don't miss the symbolism here, please. What we have are really four different promises kind of rolled into one. Those who conquer in Christ will be made a pillar in the temple, and they shall never go out of it. They will have God's name written on them. They will have the name of the new Jerusalem written on them, which is a mark that they belong to this true spiritual Israel of God. And they will have the name of Christ written on them. These promises are essentially, I would say, all that there is to the Christian faith. And what I mean is that sometimes we hear Christianity is a message about getting people out of hell. Or sometimes we hear Christianity is a message about uh, reforming people into good moral people. The Ten Commandments and that sort of thing, right? Or sometimes we hear Christianity is about belonging to a group where you can be loved and known, a community that you belong to. Those things are wonderful and they are in fact benefits of being a Christian for sure. But do you understand what the deepest blessing of being a Christian is? The greatest blessing, the greatest blessing of Christianity is that those who are in Christ will be forever and eternally in his presence. Heaven will be amazing because we will be with God. We will be established in his presence never to leave again, never to suffer like Adam and Eve suffered in being banished from his presence with our very identity now wrapped into his, the way that it was when Adam and Eve were first created to walk with God in the garden. The dwelling place of God will be with man, is what Revelation says. And God will be with us and we will never be separated from him. 
Our identity will be fully in Christ. We will wear his name. And as he looks on us, he will see a reflection of himself. And look, I want you to really understand that maturity in Christ means that you move towards being more fired up about this idea. It may be that when you become a new Christian, you're just thrilled to be saved from the punishment of hell. Right? That should thrill you. It may be that when you're a new Christian, you're just fired up about being set free from the power of sin and shame in your life that for so long has just led you down a path of destruction. It may be that when you're a new Christian, you're excited to be part of this community where finally you found some people who are real and genuine and loving and honest and kind. Or maybe that when you first become a Christian, you find this purpose for your life, this mission that your life never had before that takes up this kind of emptiness and gives you something to press on towards. And again, all of those things are great things. I hope that you have and do ha- have had and do have many of those things. They should stick with you to some degree for the rest of your life as you walk with Christ. But do you understand truly that none of those things are the best thing? None of those things are the ultimate thing. The best thing is that we wear the name of God and Christ. We will dwell in the presence of our God forever. The object which is the deepest desire of our hearts will be ours. God will establish the temple of his presence on us who he has made pillars in his new kingdom. And because of what Christ has done, He has secured for us a place at his table where we will fellowship with him forever and we will always be satisfied. And the journey of the Christian life, therefore, is to prepare for that day, to grow into maturity and know Jesus Christ so that we can love him with greater degrees more and more each day so that we can think of nothing more excellent than the excellencies of Christ and our fellowship with him now in this life and into eternity. And so to belong to the spiritual Israel means that we belong to Christ, who himself is Israel. And in him, all of the promises of God that have been made have been fulfilled. And in him, we find the authority to dwell in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And that, my friends, is the climax of the Christian life. In him, we dwell and he forever dwelling in us. Let me pray for us. God, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you so that nothing is more precious than you, nothing that this life has to offer, no no wonderful joy, no other promise, no relationship, nothing in this world is equal to you in what we desire and in what we expect to fulfill us, to meet our needs, to satisfy us. And Lord, as we look to you, God, would you Equip us, empower us, encourage us. Lord, would you help us to press on and to strive for godliness? Not because we are capable in ourselves, but because your son Jesus, the true and holy Israel of God who upheld the law and loved you without any temptation to do other. God, would you keep us in him? And would you help us to press on in him?
as we fix our eyes in him, would we find everything we need to honor you? And would our hearts burn with desire for you, we pray. Amen.